talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. Ontario Liberals are proposing a four-day work week. How about a good job for all five days a week? Here's Scott Thompson! Oh, my. Sheesh. Somebody woke up on the political side of the bed. Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, Will on the board, and uh, Ken actually in for Ted today. Diana as well. They'll be joining us uh, around the big round table coming up after the 4.30 news, so hang around for that. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Uh, also, Twitter and Facebook. You'll find the poll question of the day there waiting for you as well. We'll get to that coming up uh, moments from now. All right, another jam-packed show. Right now as we speak, the uh, Prime Minister is in uh, British Columbia. And remember, of course, uh, during the very first day of Truth and Reconciliation, he was at the beach at Tofino. Uh, and uh, instead, uh, I guess, uh, just um, politely declined um, invitations from two people in British Columbia a couple of times to to attend events while he was there, uh, obviously choosing not to. We all know what happened with that. And now he is uh, he's sitting in um, at, a, at a table taking questions, and you can imagine what those are like. And uh, he's trying very, uh, I guess, uh, difficultly to <laughs> to to explain his situation. And and uh, you know, he what can you do? He's got that look on his face. All right, your poll question of the day uh, again in regard to the Kamloops situ- uh, situation is the PM's trip to Kamloops about truth and reconciliation or public relations? Uh, you know. Making amends. 86% say it's about public relations. Feel free to offer your uh, result. We would like to hear from you on our Twitter page. And from Friday, uh, will you download the new uh, government COVID-19 QR code thing? And uh, I guess uh, 80% of you are saying yes. Again, I thought uh, on Friday that you're going to pretty much see the same amount of people that are, same thing with the vaccination rates uh, with the QR code, because if you got it, you'll no doubt want to uh, downloaded, and that's pretty much where we're sitting at. Uh, yeah, feel free. Twitter, love to hear from you. All right, uh, the Premier of Ontario was uh, down by Windsor today talking about a new hospital, but obviously is going to be asked about when restaurants and such are going to see capacities uh, change. Uh, here's what he had to say in regard to reopening plans, and when we'll hear something. The plan will be out uh, this week. We've been working on it for, for weeks and weeks, actually, now. Uh, we we want to make sure we have a plan that will, will stand the test of time moving forward. Uh, we never, ever want to shut down this economy again. All right, so sometime in the next week, we're going to hear more about reopening plans uh, on uh, getting rid of vaccine receipts. And now that QR codes are coming in, uh, what's the status moving forward? There's a lot of seniors out there and our our constituent offices are trying to to help them work through it or their family members. But not everyone, uh, you know, carries around their 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 cell phone. I'm talking elderly parents. Um, so we're going to make sure that we still have the little vaccine certificates and 
And we've heard scenarios of doctors writing, uh, I guess, fake notes for some patients in regard to get out of vaccination. Here's what the uh, premier had to say on that. I have all the confidence in the Ontario College of Physicians. They've always done a great job. They can kind of police their their physicians, and I'm going to rely on them. And, um, you know, the the two docs, I, I guess they got their hands slapped over this. All right, the Premier uh, speaking earlier today, uh, talking about a hospital reopening, a hospital uh, under, well, a hospital proposed for construction coming up in Windsor, and uh, obviously being questioned on whether and when restaurants and other businesses will see capacity restrictions relax, similar to what we've seen with arenas and stadiums, obviously. All right, the show's just beginning. We'd love for you to be a part of it. There are extremely rare uh, cases of deaths or hospitalizations among fully vaccinated individuals. That has been the case even before uh, the the death of Colin Powell, especially among people, older people over a certain age uh, and people who have underlying health issues or people who are battling other diseases. All right, that's the White House uh, speaking officially on the death of uh, Colin Powell at age 84 as a result of complications from COVID-19. We remember that uh, Colin Powell at one time was was even thought for, uh, could have have been president, and, and could he have been presidential material? And the whole situation around Iraq and the, uh, the weapons of mass destruction, which uh, Colin Powell uh, allegedly said that there, there were uh, weapons of mass destruction. And uh, in fact, in the end, that, that was not the case. So uh, Colin Powell um, didn't uh, exit poli- or exited politics uh, a, a lot differently than the way he entered it and rose to uh, stardom in, in a very short period of time. Let's bring in Brian J. Karam, political commentator for CNN and a host of the podcast. Just ask the question. Brian is with us now. Brian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well. How about yourself? I'm good, thanks so much. So how how are Americans remembering Colin Powell? Uh, depends on which Americans you're talking to. Um, to some, he was a, a hero and a uh, a member of a minority community that made people uh, open their eyes to the fact that African Americans can uh, have and enjoy a leadership role in the military. And to others, he was uh, an apologist for the Bush administration who got us involved in Middle East based on lies and uh, and selling those lies before Congress and the American people. So a uh, bit of both, mixed, a little mixed bag today. Well, go back to those days, because we remember how popular Colin Powell was at the height of his career. Uh, then, of course, weapons of mass destruction. Uh, this, these were weapons that supposedly Iraq had. Uh, in, in, in go the troops, and then there wasn't any. How did these wires get crossed? Whose fault was this? Was this Colin Powell's? How did, how did he end up where he did? Well, that's never really been determined. Colin Powell said that it was one of the things that will be in his obituary, and he was right about that, and said that uh, it was a, a, a blight on his record, uh, and it is that. He was either duplicitous with the American people or a dupe. Uh, take your choice. It, either he believed what he had to say and passed it along, or he didn't believe what he had to say and passed it along. But at the end of the day, uh, he's responsible for what he said and what he did before the American people. And that's, uh, I don't think he ever denied that. But I think it's either way, um, that particular mistake 
cost us in the international community greatly, and it's not something that's easily explained away, nor is it easily understood why he did it. Um, If he just trusted the members of the intelligence community that passed the information along to him, then uh, that was incredibly naive. And if he was, uh, if he understood it and still did it, then that's extremely calculating. Either way, it wasn't good. So will it depend on who you ask on how he will be remembered, what his legacy is, either, you know, as rising star or as you just mentioned? Well, he was, I mean, he wasn't a rising star. I mean, he was on the American political scene for a while. He was even considered uh, at, at one time uh, as a Republican candidate for president, and he didn't. He denied that he wanted to do that, and he in fact didn't do it. Um, he was. He made some sound decisions and and did some sound things for the country. That you cannot deny. And so, when you remember Colin Powell, you better remember it. it you can't remember one without remembering the other. So I guess he's as human as the rest of us. He he did some things well, and he. He made some colossal blunders. So we know where politics is now. Uh, is this just another passing, or do we learn something from all of this? Well, I, you better hope we learn something from it. Um, and it remains to be seen whether the American public has learned anything from it. We're as divided now as we've ever been. And how Colin Powell's being remembered is, uh, is a good indication of how divided we are now. And those who support Trump um, dislike him for a variety of reasons. None of it has to do with what he did in the Middle East. It has to do with how he treated and how he thought of Donald Trump as being a threat to the United States. So there are many Trumpers who will not mourn his passing. There are many who believe he's responsible for a war we should have never been involved in that will not mourn his passing. And there are those of the members of the military who will uh, mourn his passing as uh, being a, a great leader in the United States. And there are millions of Americans who will remember that part of him as well. It's a mixed bag. But, you know, I, there, a good friend of mine lived down the street from him and his wife and one time remember seeing uh, Colin Powell going out uh, and taking the garbage out to the curb. And he said, that he, he said, you know, General, that's one thing I never thought I'd see, a, a general taking his own garbage, his own trash out to the, to the curb and he said well in this household i'm only second in command (laughs) there you go brian j karam with us political commentator for cnn and also columnist for the washington diplomat host of the podcast just ask the question brian thanks for the time and insight much appreciated be well you too take care all right i'm going to introduce you to something that uh, you probably never heard of before it's called multiple systems atrophy uh, atrophy that's multiple systems atrophy Uh, there is currently no treatment for multiple systems atrophy it's a disease that is so rare that many medical professionals will not even see a case of it during their career it can take up to three years for a diagnosis but greater awareness of multiple systems atrophy means donations understanding can lead to research and and hopefully a cure. I want to introduce you to Kelly Murphy. She is a patient uh, advocate for the board of directors to defeat multiple systems atrophy. And full disclosure, Kelly is my brother-in-law's sister, which is how I found out about all of this and the disease. So we're going to try to spread the word. Hey, Kelly, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. And of course, Jacqueline, her daughter, is with her as well. So first of all, how is uh, the East Coast? you have a good time? 
Oh, we had a great time. <laughs> I, I followed on Facebook. The pictures were great. So uh, talk about MSA and, and how it came into your life and, and you first realized something was wrong. Well, it's it's a really weird thing because I took almost three years to be diagnosed with MSA. I knew there was something wrong with me, um, but, you know, it was all in my head. I was told it's, I'm just getting older. Uh, it's, uh, so many tests. Even my family doctor said, oh, you haven't got MSA. I was doing research. I thought I either had Parkinson's or multiple, um, MS, not MSA. And unfortunately I got the, the news that it was MSA. And so it was three years after all this started that you finally got this diagnosis? After I said, there's something wrong with me. My blood pressure was dropping. I couldn't, walking to my car was um, a task in itself. That it took that long, yeah, to have all the tests and the MRIs and the blood work and the sleep studies, everything. So what are the symptoms? What, what is it like? Uh, with me, it started with, in the shower. I would get very lightheaded and have to sit down in the shower. Um, and that was my blood pressure. So it's slow movement, blood pressure, loss of balance, sleep, speech difficulties, uh, difficulty with motor skills, bladder. It just goes on. It's, it's like your brain is, you are the motherboard and your brain is not connecting. It affects everything. So what was it like for you to get this diagnosis? This, it sounds weird, but it was almost uh, a relief to get the diagnosis because it was, it's better to know the devil and mm. uh, move forward from there. So it, it was a relief. It was heartbreaking for, for all of us as a family, but it was definitely a relief. Uh, how, how obviously this is something that not a lot of medical officials, professionals know about, as you, as we mentioned here, maybe see it once in your career, if you even see that, uh, how difficult has it been to get focus on multiple systems atrophy? How rare is this? It's, uh, four in 100,000 people are diagnosed with MSA. Uh, I think it, I personally, I think it might be more people, but um, people are diagnosed with um, Parkinson's disease and quite often to Parkinson's they decide it's not Parkinson's that it's MSA and the only really way to tell that you have MSA is post-mortem is um, autopsy hmm. so you thought initially MS or, uh, or, or Parkinson's how different is multiple systems atrophy from these other diseases is it unique or is it similar it's unique it's almost like if ALS and Parkinson's got married they would have a child called MSA huh. <laughs> so it's like Parkinson's on steroids and is there, uh, obviously, if they know very little about it, they don't, is there any cause? Is there any relation to anything? Where are they even pointing with the research? They don't know what the cause is. It could be environment. Uh, it's not genetic. Uh, whether it's pesticides, uh, we have no idea. It's a buildup of protein on your brain, but they don't know how you get it or where it comes from. And it's not genetic. It's not genetic, no. 
So as you've moved forward with this, uh, with this diagnosis and such, uh, are you finding it difficult to find information out about it? Or is it one of those things once you realized what it was and was, you know, pointed in the right direction, then it was easy to get information? Um, it's easy if you know where to look. Um, I've joined every group possible on Facebook. I researched online. So that's how I became a member of the um, board of directors with Defeat MSA, because I did so much research and talked to people and, and to find out information. But once you get to the right doctor, I go to Dr. Anthony Lang in um, Toronto Western Hospital. He is like world renowned on MSA. And he's a wonderful doctor. So when you know where to go, then you get the information. It's just unfortunate that a lot of uh, health practitioners don't know about it. So and tell us. Sorry. So tell us about the awareness campaign and defeat MSA. I'm going to let my daughter Jacqueline tell you, but she's better with stuff like sure. that. Sure. So um, October 3rd is MSA Awareness Day. So that just passed. Um, and then in March, we have our Move for MSA campaign, which is the whole month of March. We ask people to move for those who can't move for. Uh, MSA, move for the warriors of MSA and uh, move for the angels of MSA. Um, so that is our awareness campaign. So we also have um, an MSA shoe that travels the world. And that started by a group of friends who had hid one, one shoe while their friend was sleeping. They had posted photos on social media of this shoe and, and its travels and all the funny and unique places that it ended up. Uh, the pictures were shown to a friend's mom who was suffering from MSA. Uh, it was the first time in months that she had laughed. So it had brought joy to her. Um, so after she had passed, the shoe continued to travel, but now it is used to help raise awareness and to kick MSA. And is there a um, website we can go to, Jacqueline, to find out more about this? Yeah. So if you go just to the uh, MSA, www.msacanada.ca, that there's links there for for the kick msa campaign um to donate every everything you need is right there so kelly uh it's been three years since the diagnosis what's life like for you now it's uh very different um it's everywhere i go i have to really think about where i'm going that i take my medication because you can pass out very easily um, cause the blood pressure goes so low, uh, that you're, you're on the ground. <laughs> so you just plan everything out and always by my husband's side or my daughter, she's my best friend. So I'm always, she's always by my side. Hmm. Uh, I stopped driving, um, as a family, we're just aware, um, we now look for easier exits and entrances and you're, you're actually more aware of how unfriendly places are to uh, accessibility. Um, so so you, it's, it's a different way of thinking, definitely. Uh, we're always looking out for each other a little bit more than we ever were. Um, yeah, it's a wake-up call, that's for sure. 
Yeah. Uh, Kelly Murphy with us from the board of directors for Defeat MSA, Multiple Systems Atrophy, and, of course, daughter Jacqueline, who's uh, helping her out with all of this as well. Uh, Kelly, uh, a courageous journey you're on right now, and, my goodness, what you're doing to pay it forward and uh, bring awareness to MSA is, uh, is unbelievable. Keep up the great work. Good luck to you moving forward. Okay, thanks a lot. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, interesting information coming out of the Liberal Party of Ontario over the weekend that certainly uh, I think got a lot of people's ears perked up and certainly uh, made the media. Uh, as uh, Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca says, he's not sure if a four-day work week in Ontario will work, but with views on work-life balance changing amid the pandemic, uh, he thinks it's something that should be explored. I think it's something that has been explored, been explored uh, for over a year and a half, and and that's what we're seeing now. And, you know, further breakdown of this, um, it's really just shifting five days of work into four days. So instead of working an eight-hour day, you work a 10-hour day. And again, uh, many who are working from home are obviously experiencing situations where uh, they're doing work at other par- at some points of the day and not at other points of the day. And it has turned out to be uh, productive for both uh, the employee and the employer. So, um, you know, a little smoke and mirrors here but is this something that we're going to and moving towards and does this does this appeal to people let's bring in steve globerman resident scholar in and addington chair in measurement at the fraser institute as well as professor at western washington university and with us now steve thank you for the time i hope you're well thank you so is this something that government can provide policy on, or is this something that's just a reality of the new workforce and and uh, and will be, and I guess, will make changes as a result of that? Yeah, it's the latter. Uh, I think it would be a mistake for government to make policy. Uh, this is uh, this is an initiative that uh, must come out, uh, come, come from the private sector, uh, because Different organizations are going to find different arrangements with their employees to be um, to be profitable, and uh, and and really, it, it, it's impossible for any central authority uh, to, to make a, a on what's what's best for quote unquote the the entire market system. So um, experiments are going on, as you said. Um, uh, organizations are finding that. Uh, they, need to be flexible and to experiment with new workplace arrangements and and that's the way the market should work and as as we mentioned we are seeing this already is there something government can do to somehow make this better i mean i i'm not sure uh, as a result i mean we, we've seen technology that's been around for 20 years but nobody really wanted to use and then all of a sudden in a pandemic blammo we're all using it uh is this is this more of a supply and demand sort of thing you can't dictate what the new reality is going to be no, no, you can't. You can't dictate it. Um, what you can do is is um, allow the uh, the allow employers and employees to bargain and negotiate. And actually, there are some things that government can do to facilitate transition uh, transition to new ways of working. And, and for example, some of the evidence, and there's not a lot of evidence on the four-day week and, and how it works for different organizations, but at least some of it 
suggests that it's going to work better if companies can make complementary investments that can facilitate improvements in productivity. Because you mentioned uh, in the introduction that um, it seems as though a four-day work week would be popular. Indeed, it would be popular, but, but it would be a lot more popular if employees could earn the same amount of money or more by mm-hmm. A four-day week, and and that's only possible with higher productivity, and higher productivity is only possible with investments by companies in labor-enhancing technology. We've often seen when you know when there's a recession or a shift that somehow companies restructure and 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 and, and come up with a new template moving forward. Many have said uh, during the initial stages of this pandemic, "Oh, this is no problem. I can eat and drink my way out of this." After a year and a half, it's probably safe to say nobody's coming out this the same. So, like a recession, like planning for the future, what are what are companies what is corporate Canada, corporate America doing to pivot as a result? Are we going to see less office space, less footprint, uh, lower wages because people are staying from home? It, it, this to me seems like uh, we're, we're in for a monumental shift right now. Well, we're in for a shift. I mean, how, how significant it is is really um, only time will tell. Um, but uh, but but you, you're absolutely right. Um, companies are pivoting, um, it, not just because of COVID um, and and the changes that COVID has brought about, but also um, differential costs of living in in different locations. I mean, in employers in Toronto, in in the Lower Mainland, in British Columbia, in San Francisco, in New York. They're, they're facing a, a, a different labor market than employers, say, in Calgary or, or Kansas City. Um, and, and it's harder to attract productive when the cost of living is so high. And so you're, you're getting these pressures to experiment with new ways of working, working, for example, or even the office one day a week so you could commute from some reasonable distance. I mean, these are things that are, they've been in the works for a while. It, 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 was, go, it was in the works pre-COVID, these kinds of labor market changes, which were forcing companies to be innovative, and they'll continue. And, and, and there'll be new pressures that'll come about. Um, how, did, how did two couple families work in the same location? Maybe they can't. So you have to have remote working for at least one of them, that kind of thing. Going to be fascinating uh, to watch the next year and a half to see how we come out of this uh, as much as going through it, because, again, its uh, I don't think it's going to be the same. Steve Globerman with us, resident scholar and Addington Chair in Measurement at the Fraser Institute, as well as Professor Western Washington University. Steve, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. First, I want to again thank P. Casimir for welcoming me uh, to Kamloops Te Swatmach. I had the opportunity this morning to apologize to her and to the community in person for not having been here on September 30th. This morning we had an important and necessary conversation about how we, not just as Canadians, but as an entire country, move forward uh, given the reality 
of residential schools. Many are saying, you know, when he apologizes, why does he drag the rest of us into it? We all know what has to be done. We all know about truth and reconciliation. We all know about Kamloops and the residential schools across the country, uh, which have unmarked graves in them that need to be investigated and such. Uh, we all know about that. Uh, but again, no, you missed the day. That's what you're apologizing for. Stop dragging the rest of us into it. We all know where we have to go, the mistakes made, and moving forward. But that's not what this is about. This is about you declaring truth and reconciliation, a day, a national day for it, and then taking off for a, the beach at Tofino. So once again, I don't know whether that will be accepted or not as an apology. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. The whole crew around the big round table. Will Erskine is here. Ken Mann filling in for Ted Michaels. Uh, Diana Weeks as well. Diana, I'll start with you. Uh, man, it seems this is all we've talked about in the last week. But uh, it's in the news again because of the apology. Your thoughts? Does it change things? No, I don't think it does. It's just another day, another sorry for him. I mean, how many times is he going to say sorry for things, really? Uh, they've kind of become baseless now, I think. And, you know, I think the First Nations community and our Indigenous peoples have every right not to accept that apology. I mean, that was a blatant slap in the face what he did on September 30th by, you know, choosing, like you said, to go to that beach in Tofino as opposed to taking them up on their first offer uh, to go pay his respects. Um, And I think... I just don't understand how he couldn't have realized that was a terrible decision in the first place. And that's the problem. Did he need to go more into that as opposed to just saying what we all need to do? I think so, because it's not about us, like you said. I mean, we we were there. We know, you know, who wasn't there was our prime minister when he should have been on every screen visiting these graves, you know, that day. But instead, we saw him or didn't see him. You know, we got word from his office that he was at a beach with his family. Ken, your thoughts? Is this enough? Will this make it all go away? No, Diane is exactly right. The optics on this one are just, they are what they are. And really, there's nothing he can do to go back to change the decision he made. The optics are terrible. And, you know, I I, I don't know how this will possibly even just smooth things over going forward. I, I just can't see it. Uh, what about the clips of him and the apology? Uh, is it personal or is it more about the country in your view? Well, I, I mean, it sounds like he's certainly trying to make it a part of the overall central uh, message for, for the country as a whole. But as you pointed out, it, it was his decision to not be there on the day and to uh, take off to Tofino. So it, it really, at this, uh, on, uh, if he's going to go out there and apologize and try to make amends for that decision. It really has to be a personal apology on, on his side. And it really, it, 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 that's that's what it's about today. Or it should be, Good anyway. Good point. Uh, Will, did he have to apologize? In other words, obviously, this is pulling this all back out into the open again. But is it something that he had to do? Uh, I mean, no one ever has to apologize, but I'd say there's only one right thing to do in this case is, yes, he he needed to apologize, and it should have been more personal than this, because, yes, as the leader of the country, he can... 
and should probably issue some sort of apology. He's supposed to be leading us towards reconciliation and things like that. But in this case, this was a personal issue, a personal error. And even if he feels it personally, he can't couch it in grander universal language of uh, we all have to learn now. No, you have to learn first. Yeah, I, I thought I didn't think the apology was personal uh, personal enough. It's nope. not what the country did. It, it's what the prime minister didn't do. All right, let's talk about a, a four-day work week. Uh, uh, Stephen Del Duca on with Good Morning Hamilton uh, earlier on today talking about this. But at further breakdown, it's really not working less. It's just taking what we've already done and, and, and you know condensing it into four weeks, which many have been doing anyway in some form from working from home and such. I'll start with you, Diane. Is this something there should be policy on or is this something that an employee and an employer works out? Um, I, I think it should be something an employer and an employee works out because, I mean, I can't imagine how we would do a four day work week like, you know, yeah. we, we obviously can't do Monday to Thursday or Tuesday to Friday or you know what I mean? So I don't know. I, I think it's. It depends. I, I mean, for a lot of businesses, I think it could work, but I don't think it can be like a, a, a sweeping reform. I, I don't know. It just sounds like it is going to flop <laughs> to me. And, and it's, a, it's a little deceiving because it's not like you're working one last day. It's just you're taking the Friday off, but somehow jamming that work into your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So it, it's it's a little deceiving. Is it, Ken, your thoughts? Well, sure. I mean, I mean, this is it's always going to be different for every employee at every different company because everybody has different responsibilities and roles. Right. So what works for one person isn't going to work for another person. You can't make a blanket policy like this work across the board. I, I, I mean, I could personalize this a little bit. It's it's the it's the exception to the rule the day that I'm actually in the studio like I am today. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, I'm working from home and I've kind of gotten used to being available to do things when they need to be done. So it's it's uh, it's changed my hours a little bit, even working from home, uh, to the point where I, I kind of prioritize my time where it needs to be, uh, as opposed to trying to fit it within any structured eight-hour necessarily on on some days, right? So it, it, it's, it's almost... Uh, this pandemic really, to me, has shown that people work when they when they need to work in, in some cases in some industries and you know as i say everybody's everybody's experience with this is a little have bit attitudes different. have attitudes changed post covid-19 people uh, looking at this differently now do you think ken um i i'm sorry in what sense do you do you mean well just that you know uh, i want more quality of life than i had before COVID-19. Oh, I see. Well, I mean, I really think that's always kind of been a discussion that has been out there in terms of uh, because of so much commuting time for a lot of people and the time that they spend on the roads. And how do I how do I balance my my time better? I, I think that we've been talking about that for a long time, long before COVID. However, I would say that the pandemic has put a more of a spotlight on something that we a lot of us have, have deemed to be important for, for a decade or two, as I say, as people have moved further and further out from, say, Toronto or, or even Hamilton yeah. to work, and they're trying to balance their lives a little bit better. 
a fully vaccinated Will, uh, vaccinated Will is out like a restauranting and and going to the movie theater. He's seen the new James Bond. What's this like? It must is it amazing? I uh, I will say I will put it in a low level of amazing. It was a lot of fun. It was a solid <laughs> James Bond movie. If you are a fan of any aspect of the movies, they put something in it for you, and that's how they made it really work. It is a solid kind of farewell for uh, Daniel Craig and. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was a good amount of James Bond for everyone, and uh, worth it seeing in the theater. Yeah, there you go, two thumbs up from the Will Man. Two thumbs All up. All right, thanks, thanks to everyone around the big round table: Ken Man, Diana Weeks, and Will Erskine. Uh, over the weekend, the Ontario Liberal Party floated the idea that maybe we should be looking into a four-day work week, uh, which of course gets everybody's attention. Who doesn't want to work four days and get paid for five? And then we realize, after further blush, it's really uh, not about working a four-day work. Work week. It's about taking five days and cramming it into four. Uh, and, and this can be done through efficiencies, working from home. A lot of what we have experienced in the last year and a half over the uh, over the course of a uh, global pandemic. Uh, and again, we're seeing uh, industry and businesses adjust. Uh, is this something that policy uh, should be a part of? Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Henry, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I sure am. <laughs> Are you surprised that uh, this idea is being floated around? Um, I mean, I wouldn't have predicted exactly, but I mean, I expect that the liberals have to do come up with some really uh, fancy proposals or things that will pe- you know, catch people's attention because they're in a pretty perilous state right now. Uh, what can governments do or how can they add to this discussion? Because uh, we're pretty much seeing companies and, and workers doing this on their own. Uh, is there something government can do to add to this? Well, it, it, it's very difficult because uh, our, how people work, uh, even before the pandemic, uh, I think, was changing in terms of uh, there were um, probably more people working from home than we might have realized. But, of course, this uh, accelerated everything. And then a number of employers found, well, that, you know, it's actually worked very well because uh, the commuting time that people had, well, they could devote it to doing their work. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of people who say, you know, it's very hard to have a, a line between when you're at home and when you're at work because you're always at home and you're, you're, they're working harder. And uh, now uh, I've talked to other people who are going back, uh, you know, people who, you know, have buy, uh, bought houses in, uh, in the uh, Hamilton area uh, because they wanted to, you know, they were going to spend more time at home, so they wanted more green space and a bit more house, you know, and they could get that compared to Toronto. And and uh, so they, some people liked that, even though they were working more hours. And, uh, and you know, and now they're they're going to find out in January. Some have told me, well, my employer wants me to come back three days a week, so I'll have two weeks mm-hmm. at home. Just shows you that I think this is going to be worked out between the uh, the individuals and their employers. That's what I think is going to happen. Uh, does it sound to you like the Ontario Liberals keep moving farther and farther to the left? And can you explain as a political scientist why that is? Uh, we see it at the federal level. We see it at the provincial level, especially around election time, where they go in and they, they'll take stuff out of the NDP shopping cart uh, that, you know, Ontarians or Canadians uh, think is attractive, and then they run with it. Uh, the NDP, you know, poll well before the election, but it never really translates. So why does the... 
the why doesn't the Liberal Party move back towards the center more as opposed to constantly chasing the the NDP? And and some would say flashing a headline like this is getting that attention. Well, I think this is a long history of, both, of the uh, Liberal Party has done this both provincially and federally. We have a long, long history of that. Uh, you know, some of the great victories federally by Mackenzie King going all the way back into the 1940s was where he had just adopted all sorts of things that were in the, uh, then in the, the uh, uh, New Democrats, uh, uh, you know, portfolio, but it was uh, CCF, at the, that was the name of the party at that time. So mm-hmm. it, this goes back a long way. The liberals have a really big problem. They, they have two important enemies. One's on each side of them, so they're being attacked from the left and the right, and they're always trying to shift around to see where they can get, you know, be in the best place. And it's, uh, it's, it's really a difficult thing for the party to do. And, of course, for the current uh, provincial liberal party, they, they misjudged every, things, I think, to a certain degree in the last election, and they wound up with the worst result in their history. And now they're in a situation where people look at them and say, well, there's practically nobody left uh, in the legislature from the liberals, and maybe what we're going to do going forward is we're going to have basically a, a primarily a two-party system that's going to be between the progressive conservatives and the NDP. So the liberals have, you know, are trying to find places where they can bring in some new voters or voters back who, who, had, who had left them. And uh, they're, so right now they think it's the best place is to try the, the NDP because the NDP was the one that actually st- took away a number of liberal voters in the last election. Uh, is Del Duca's biggest challenge being related to or uh, being a part of uh, the past Kathleen Wynne government? Well, I, I think uh, probably that's quickly fading. I think they're... The bigger problem is that, uh, in terms of uh, worrying about the uh, previous governments, is the fact that the uh, Trudeau won a lot of seats in Ontario and is now back in power in Ottawa. And uh, what we've seen in the past is that uh, provincial, uh, if there's a provincial election after a federal election where the Liberals have done very well in Ontario, normally people have shied away from the uh, provincial liberal party because they basically have looked for uh, a provincial party that is different. I think the people in Ontario seem to indicate for one reason or another that they like to have one party in Ottawa and a different party in uh, in at Queen's Park. And uh, I think that's, that is a very big problem for them. And uh, on top of it, well, of course, is that a number of people, uh, actually, the uh, the provincial liberals might do better when the uh, when the ND, when the when their federal party doesn't do so well uh, in Ontario, because then a lot of those candidates then would run in in the provincial election. But that's mm. not going to happen this time. So there's a lot of reasons why, in fact, uh, the last elect- federal election has probably harmed the provincial liberals. Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about provincial politics and an election coming, of course, uh, next year. Henry, thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, nice talking to you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The site of the former Arrowdale Golf Course has been a point of contention in Brantford for a number of years. Uh, since the weekend before last, a group of Six Nations land defenders have occupied the space. The city has characterized the occupation as unlawful. The Brantford Expositor uh, says the occupation of the former Arrowdale Municipal Golf Course is the latest development in a battle that has gone on for years. Uh, as I mentioned, 
last Saturday, a group of six nations of the Grand River moved onto the property, setting up an encampment inside the front gate of the Stanley Street property. Members of the group calling themselves land defenders want the city to abandon the sale of part of the property to a developer and also shelve plans to create a park on site. Uh, they say they will remain on the property for as long as the grass grows and the sky is blue. City officials issued a statement calling the occupation unlawful and said the matter has been referred to Brantford Police. They will continue to monitor the protest area for the safety of all parties. Uh, city residents have also voiced opposition for the city's plans for Arrowdale. Uh, sorry, Arrowdale. Uh, we just want them to step back and sit down for and have a conversation with us, said Peter, Perry, or Peter Shear. He's a member of a group called Friends of Arrowdale and a longtime municipal golf ad- advocate. A lot of us want to, uh, a lot of us feel that we haven't been heard and we think that the city should listen to what we have to say. That is over and above, obviously, the indigenous concerns. Joining us now, Trevor Bomberry, land defender on the site of the former Arrowdale golf course in Brantford and is with us now. Trevor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, everything's, um, everything's, uh, good here. Um, uh, personally, I'm, um, I'm quite overwhelmed with uh, all the uh, love and support um, that the Brantford uh, community has uh, uh, shown us. Are you, uh, you're still on site now. There's still a group of people there. Is that accurate? Yeah, 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 we're still here. And um, um, what what we've been doing uh, lately, seeing as um, uh, with a part of our uh, protest, aside of that, was that, we wanted to start engaging in um, um, community activities uh, in, in Bradford with uh, with the community, of, uh, with the citizens of Bradford, and uh, strengthen those relations that um, you know their uh, Bradford's um, uh, elected officials have um, you know failed uh, in respect to uh, strengthening relations with Six Nations. We've noticed that um, the, the people here are actually upholding that. Um, um, that campaign promised by the mayor and, and his citizens are now doing it on behalf of him. And, um, and I, and I, when I look at that, it just shows me that, um, that, uh, you know, there's the, the people of Brantford want, um, um, this, this positive relationship because, um, they have a generational tie with our people, uh, for over the years, not just the land here. Is why is this moving forward again? I mean, there's situations of this all over the place. If there is still unsettled uh, business there, would this have been going on if it had remained or was to remain as the Aaron Arrowdale Golf Course? No, it was. Uh, see, the thing was, I don't think I'd be here if they, if uh, Brentford City Council didn't initiate the sale of uh, Arrowdale for development. And as soon as they started digging and finding, uh, when they did the archaeological study, they went ahead and um, started finding um, artifacts. And, uh, you know, and this is uh, going back like a long time. It's like a, it's like trees in a, uh, a ring in a tree. Um, so as you cut the tree, you can actually see how many years that tree has been growing, um, has been alive. And, same with the ground. The, um, whatever you find on top is present day stuff. But as you start going deeper and deeper, um, uh, that's when you start hitting um, um, points of time in history. Hmm. 
and the community is becoming supportive of this. Do you see the tide changing here, Trevor? Um, yes, I do. Um, and it's just not on, our, uh, you know, here at Arrowdale. It's on every territory. Um, Canada, <clears throat> as a corporation, is starting to see that um, a lot of these things are starting to come to light. Um, and, um, I've always, uh, you know, always had this thought in my mind and it was told to me before a long time ago by, uh, an elder was that there's going to be a point in time that, um, um, people that are in, in political power, uh, and, in uh, high levels in corporations, um, are, are going to be starting to, uh, expose themselves and telling on themselves and they're not even going to wonder why they're, they're doing it. Hmm. Attitudes are changing. Hopefully, that will translate into results. Yeah, and 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 the thing is, like I'm not asking anybody, um, you know, to uh, uh, you know compromise themselves in any way uh, for the sake of the protest. That that changes that change has change has to come with from within, and and a lot of people uh, are sick and tired with all the stuff we've been going on with COVID right now. Um, it, they just got to the point where they're just saying enough was enough, and nobody, their own uh, political leaders aren't listening to them. So, hmm. like I said, uh, the people are taking it in their own hands to say, "Hey, listen, we want to change." The power isn't with the with the elected officials. It's the power, uh, the strength comes with uh, the power of its people. That's how. That's Canada wasn't built just by the people representing um, the country. I mean, the, the corporation of Canada. It, the people is the ones that built it. Trevor Bomberry with his land defender on the site of the former Arrowdale Golf Course in Brantford. Uh, obviously a point of contention and continues to be uh, even today. Trevor Bomberry with us. Trevor, good luck with all of this moving forward. Thanks for sharing the story. I appreciate it, brother, and thanks a lot. And, uh, and anytime that you want to reach out, um, I'm here. We'll remember that. Thanks, Trevor. Good luck. Obviously, as you know from the newscasts and what you've been hearing today and our poll question of the day, the Prime Minister is in British Columbia today uh, following the backlash over his vacation in Tofino on the exact same day that there was the very first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Uh, it's been going on for uh, several hours, just finally winding up now, and uh, we've been playing various quotes uh, from those meetings uh, over the course course of the afternoon uh, but the big question is does this help does this hurt is this something he had to do i guess obviously he did but is there any correcting uh such a um a bizarre mistake i mean it just i think a lot of people are just shaking their heads at the prime minister's office and the man himself on on why he could make such a a huge gaffe on a day that uh, he was campaigning so strongly for let's bring in dr ken coates canada research chair with the johnson shoyama school uh, graduate school of public policy at the university of saskatchewan and senior fellow of aboriginal and northern canadian issues with the mcdonald Laurier institute and with us now doctor thank you for the time i hope you're well I'm just doing fine, sir. Uh, your thoughts on the Prime Minister's uh, apology today and what we heard, help or hinder? Um, help, absolutely a necessary thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. Helping him overcome one of the biggest uh, faux pas. 
that he's made in a in a, a time as prime minister that's actually full of faux pas. So we're kind of we're kind of used to him doing goofy things, to be honest, and trying to find a more parliamentary way to describe it. But this is a huge error, and 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 better this than nothing, uh, better late than never. Um, but I hope he's learned something, and this is more than just a transitory embarrassment. I hope he's learned something fundamental about the relationship with Indigenous peoples. Uh, do you think he has learned anything here? Because many are shaking their heads on how such a blunder could be made, not only with him personally, but even the staff in the Prime Minister's office. It actually is quite astonishing, because this is kind of the kind of thing that, that almost everybody who heard about it thought, just can't be true. When I heard about it the, the day he yeah. arrived in Tofino, I thought, no, 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 no. He means he's going to Tofino tomorrow or it's going to happen next week. And it was simply unimaginable, unimaginable. Um, uh, there is something else to take out of this, though, that's really interesting. I'm hoping that this whole exercise in, informs Canadians about the remarkable dignity of Indigenous peoples in times of, of these kinds of sorrows and crises. You know, they're not they're not beating up on the prime minister. They're not using this opportunity to embarrass him further. They're basically said, you made a mistake. You came here. Please listen. So you've asked a really important question. Is something fundamental going to change? Uh, the answer so far is uh, that it hasn't happened. This is not the, the first time the prime minister has done something somewhere rather like this. Um, he's given to sort of showboating opportunities and things of that sort. That's been his, his mark of, of distinction as we sort of run along. But I'm really hoping this time around that something gets through, not just to the prime minister, the prime minister is a, one person, but to the country as a whole. Uh, there's an act of enormous dignity in how the First Nations are handling all of this, uh, an openness to tell their stories, to share their experiences, to, to seek reconciliation. That's the core message that I take out of all of this. The fact that they invited him back and welcomed him back and have treated him uh, professionally and, and, and publicly uh, is a really good thing. Um, but I wouldn't put too much stock in what the prime minister says. He has to prove things. And that's what First Nations leaders are saying. This is, a, uh, this is one act. It's a, it's a bit of an apology, but he's made, the prime minister has made many apologies. Um, the question is, will you actually do something differently now? And that's the part that I'm not sure about. Uh, again, it seems that attitudes have greatly changed, and the Indigenous leaders that I've talked to since the discovery at Kamloops, uh, under the that former residential school site, Canadians are looking at it differently. They're they're trying to understand and and are understanding. But again, leaders are very cautious that you know understanding it's one thing, actually doing something is another. There, there's two parts to what you said, and you're both absolutely right. The first part is that Aboriginal people have been saying the same message for about 40 years. And they certainly yeah. said it in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which came out years ago. They said it in the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, which came out in the 1990s. They've said about it for, forever, for years of talking about the impact of residential schools. And finally, the unmarked graves managed to get the public's attention. So attention is one thing. Now the question is, will Canadians fundamentally change the way they do things? There was absolutely nothing in the last federal election that suggests anything greater than symbolism was likely to happen. I think Canadians are beside themselves with the, the silliness of handing, having the, the, the flags at half-mast all this time. In fact, it's been robbed yeah. of any significance it might have had. Lowering the flag to half-mast is a major enterprise now. We're too embarrassed to raise it. And, and I think Canadians just haven't got this figured out. Indigenous peoples are looking for fundamental systematic change. They want a new relationship with Canadians, with the 
public at large. It is not about more money. It is not about sort of breaking off and becoming independent. They're looking for a future within Canada in partnership with other Canadians with full economic participation. That's what the First Nations leaders are talking about. They want to have, make sure that the residential school kind of thing never happens again. The paternalism is dead. Uh, they haven't got any evidence of that yet. And it's going to take uh, months, if not years, for the current government to send that right message and for other political parties to send that message. Dr. Ken Coates with us, University of Saskatchewan and a senior fellow of Aboriginal and Northern Canadian issues with the Macdonald Laurier Institute, talking about the Prime Minister in British Columbia today. Ken, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're always welcome. Bye now. Uh, obviously, we've heard about the plight of Alberta and the en- energy industry and where that has left uh, the province. And now, as we've heard in the past, uh, an issue in regard to empty offices, office space in Alberta, uh, apparently as high as a 30% vacancy rate in the office towers in that province. Uh, is this just something that is uh, central to Alberta or will this happen in other provinces? Is this about the energy industry collapsing or is this just about a shift in the way we do things in a post-pandemic world? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing very well, thanks, Scott. Is this all about the energy industry and where it finds itself, another boom or bust situation for Alberta? Or is this what's happening, a shift, a bigger shift that's happening in a post-pandemic world? Um, it's both, and I'm not trying to sit on the fence on this one. On the one hand, I want to say to you and and to your listeners, I think the situation, and I've been studying it, I have friends out there, I've been looking at the data, it is a unique situation because Alberta, as everyone knows, is overwhelmingly dependent on oil and gas industry directly or indirectly. And I mean by indirectly, you know, there's lots of people there. You know, my joke is in Ottawa, I'm dependent on the federal public service because I'm teaching the children, the sons and the daughters of the people that work in the government. So we're a government town. Well, Calgary and Alberta is an oil and gas province. So Mm -hmm. even if you don't work in the oil and gas industry, you're probably selling to the oil and gas industry or teaching the children of the people that work in the oil and gas and so forth. And the industry has collapsed. Um, partly because of things that were going on pre-pandemic, and then it was accelerated by the policies of the federal government because of transitioning to a carbon-free society over time. All of that, suffice to say, has caused massive vacancies in the downtown. You already mentioned it, 30%, which is just a stunning figure. These are these tall buildings that are 40, 50 stories high. They're multi-hundreds of millions of dollar buildings. And and some of them are two-thirds empty, 50% empty, few buildings are completely empty. And then the question is, how do you recover and, and diversify into something else? But very quickly, Scott, to your second point, I'm not trying to say that this is a problem un- of, of uh, emptying the downtown is unique to Calgary. I said their problems are unique because of their dependency on oil and gas. But there's these problems are going on in other large cities, not to the same scale where you've got 30% or more vacant, but still, nonetheless, very large problems. I can drive into downtown Ottawa, and I do from time to time, not all the time, and it's still a ghost town because yeah. the largest employer, it's not oil and gas in Ottawa, it's called the government, and most of them have not returned to work. 
And and so then the question is, what? How do you? Whether it's called Calgary or Ottawa or the cities, how do you reinvent the downtown if the original basis that made the downtown what it was so economically vibrant is no longer there? And you know the story in the Globe and Mail and others are saying, well, we'll just reconfigure these high-rise buildings and turn them into, for example, subsidized housing. Well. Where's That's that not easy, is it? From? The and and, and apparently, the and, and apparently, office towers are built with different specs than residential. It's a whole different ball game. Are they? Is it that easy to convert a, an office space to a residential? You know, there's an old joke uh, in the renovation business. My brother's a, a renovator. You know, you can solve any problem in real estate if you throw enough money at it. And and I don't mean that flippantly. I mean, if you are willing to spend uh, gargantuan amounts of money. You could convert anything into a building into another type of a purpose. But that only begs the question, who's going to pay off the developer? Those buildings are, are still worth money. Mm. And someone's got to pay them to, take, you know, to, to acquire them. And I'm talking the city of Calgary, the city of Ottawa, the city of Toronto. And then you're going to have to spend many millions more to retrofit that building. So it sounds like a really neat solution. We have homeless. We have people that can't afford housing, so we'll just sort of pop them into these high-rise buildings. But there's huge barriers to pulling this off. And then the second question is, but that doesn't address how are you going to make the downtown sustainable? What's what's going to be its basis uh, for the economy that's going to pay people for jobs to work? Interesting article in the conversation about uh, get ready for the invasion of smart building technologies following COVID-19. How much are we ready for how much industry, uh, and that's virtually every industry, is about to change? It's not going to go back the way it was. Like any recession, is this a pivot point for the world, pivot point for corporate America, corporate Canada? Oh, I, I do think, I mean, there'll be books written about this, PhD theses and, <laughs> and so forth. This truly was a pivotal moment. Some of the pandemic accelerated changes that were already there, as you and I have discussed, online e-commerce uh, is accelerated under the pandemic. But the pandemic, in terms, again, of the downtown, the idea that you bring millions and millions of people in all the cities across Canada, the United States, Europe, and you bring them down every day from the suburbs, mostly, and then they work all day, and then they go back home. That model, I think, I won't say it's disappeared, but it has been radically undermined by the pandemic, and Mm. there's an awful lot of businesses that are willingly undermining it because they're saying, gee whiz, maybe I don't have to own that $200 million building in downtown Toronto and all the costs of maintaining it, and requiring all the people to show up when I can staff them in, in you know, the suburbs and have them work remotely with is equal productivity often and sometimes higher productivity. So it's, uh, the, the attitudes are changing of corporate decision makers, CEOs, CFOs, and HR managers and vice presidents. So the downtown, I don't believe, is going to, quote, snap back once the pandemic's over. It's not going to vanish it's not going to disappear, but it, the downtown is not going to be what it was previous to March 2020, even two or three or four or five years from now. It's going to hmm. look very different, and the economics are going to be different. 
Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about life post-pandemic as we try to figure out what the new world is going to be about. Ian, thanks for the time. As always, be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. And that is a wrap for the show. Alex Pearson coming up next. Uh, thanks so much to Will and Ken and Diana for contributing today. Coming up, as we do always on Hamilton Today, we leave it to you, the good CHML listener, to have the last word. I just want to apologize and say it was a great learning experience for my whole family when I banged up my dad's card while joyriding. 